am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Welcome to Election Shock Therapy here at Bethel University. I'm Chris Moore, and joining me in my office today is... Andy Bramson. And Mitchell Crum. And we were just talking, we were talking about a number of things before we went on the air here. But gentlemen, if you had a gun to your head and you had to do karaoke, what's your go-to song? <laughs> wow. Um, I, I guess I guess uh, to, to to mix both the political science oh, and the go. musical and the and and the cool hip hop here is mm-hmm. I would choose I would choose uh, probably my shot from from Hamilton. Oh, there you go. Nice. That? Ooh, that's very that's, yeah. That's very hip. Yeah. Um, yep. Very fresh. Very new. Like um, yep. That's, that's that's me. As you guys know, I mean, I am always yeah. on the cutting edge. I you mean, are. Andy, yeah. give some sick bars to drop for us. I'm no, it'd probably be more like you know, bye bye Miss Ameri- American, <laughs> American Pie. Pie? Or, yeah, something like that. <laughs> you that's yeah. like the world's longest song you for karaoke. I know, I know, but that's only like other than that, I mostly like hymns, Christian songs. I don't feel like I can do karaoke. Too. You can't, you can't karaoke how great thou art. Jesus loves me. This I know. So yeah, my my range of like sort of. Um, non-Christian songs is pretty limited. <laughs> I guess I could do God Save the Queen, maybe. I don't know. Oh, that yeah. kind of worked, too. Yeah. On the rare occasions that I have had karaoke thrust upon me, uh, I've opted to go for BC Boys Sabotage. Mm-hmm. Because in that song, you don't have to carry a tune. <laughs> That's, you, that you, is a you just perk. You just shout. So. Yeah. That works. Blow my voice out. Turns out you can do that with any song. but Well, that's true. But you're supposed to in that song. <laughs> So are you guys ready for finals? Uh, no. Um, no, not not really. My my students are still taking their final round of uh, exams, okay. or, like midterm exams. So, yeah, I heard your last exam down. was a doozy, according to some of our mutual students. Yeah, I, I think they're a little bit uh, more stressed than they have to be. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, but this is but this is difficult theory. stuff. Yeah, this is this is you know right. we're doing the serious you know John Rawls, Charles Taylor, nice you know Robert Dahl, serious political theory, and that's right. It's so it's, it's not easy. A lot easy, of liberalism and democracy right there. Yes, well, and communitarianism. Yep. Um, yeah, and, and we're also reading uh, Abraham Kuyper, so. Nice. We have some nice, uh, um, serious Christian political thought about modernity. So, mm-hmm. okay. yeah. If you're going to recommend to listeners one or two, like you said, serious Christian books of mm-hmm. political thought, yeah, Kuiper's up there. Well, Kuiper's definitely up there. Um, another person I would I would uh, want 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 people to turn to would be somebody like uh, maybe maybe Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, I mm-hmm. think actually, I think especially mm-hmm. um, we sort of. We, we, we sort of immediately think of the Nazis as just, you know, totally evil. But to actually see somebody who's grappling with how do you as a Christian deal with these kinds of situations when politics isn't what it should be, um, how do you actually deal with that? And Bonhoeffer, especially in his letters and papers from prison, I think is a really nice um, meditation on that. So I um, I recommend that. Um, another – Can I stop you there? Just yeah, throw sure, a question ahead. in. I haven't yeah. asked you this, and I, I don't know if Andy has a, p- a take on this either, but have you been following the controversy by Eric Metaxas's book about Bonhoeffer? Yes, absolutely. So, I, in fact, I will say um, Metaxas was actually my gateway um, to Bonhoeffer, oh, so okay. I have sort of a connection to that. Um, well, I shouldn't – I guess I shouldn't say that. I, I knew who Bonhoeffer was before that, and I had – But no certain some, reading of But, it. yeah, I had not, that was my first, like, I, was, I read that. And um, so, in some ways, like, I look back on Metaxas's work, and I think – you know, it was it was a gateway for me to get into Casa Discipleship and Letters, Papers, from mm-hmm. Prison, and Life Together, and these yeah. sort of classic works. Um, uh, 
but yes, I, I look back on that and I have some skepticism about whether he got things right. I think sure. the criticisms are probably valid. So, okay. uh, I'm not obviously I'm not a Bonhoeffer scholar, so I'm not an expert on this. But <laughs> and for our readers or, or listeners who may not have read all this, um, what's the basic criticism? Metaxas. Uh, the basic criticism is that Metaxas has base as he wrote his huge biography of Bonhoeffer, right. right? And and I think sort of he gets sort of the basics right, um, but he turns Bonhoeffer essentially into a contemporary 21st century evangelical. Ah, And that's not what Bonhoeffer was. Bonhoeffer um, had a lot of things that he would very much disagree with in terms of contemporary evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. Um, And even though there are a number of things where they would agree, um, they, they also, they, the differences are significant enough that he, he really kind of gets some of the, especially the theology wrong. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yep. Okay. Um, Professor Bramson, if you had to recommend a couple books of Christian thought, um, for political thinkers, is there anything you, else you'd point towards? Well, I mean, I, I like to go more classical, right? So, I mean, I go back to like Augustine, and I, I okay. love, um the City of God. I think is really Aquinas? powerful. Um, yeah, Aquinas too. I, I think uh, you know Augustine in some ways is maybe an easier access, but um, oh yeah, that's for sure. But there's a nice new yeah, modern translation of Confessions that's extremely mm-hmm. readable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We well, we teach that in in the humanities class, and and I've taught you know like selections from City of God. I've never tried to actually teach the whole book. That's kind of a class unto itself. But yep. um, City of God is, I think, really powerful to think about. Sort of the you know the, both sort of Christian connections with philosophy because Augustine thinks deeply about sort of how do we connect um, Christian thought with the thought of the Platonists in particular, um, and then thinking about ourselves as citizens of heaven who are who mm-hmm. must uh, live out that citizenship in the world, and what does it look like to be in the city of man, but be part of the city of God. And so, um, yeah, I, I personally find Augustine um, super useful. Um, Aquinas is powerful, but hard, um, hard to, <laughs> to access well. Yeah. And so uh, just, you know, I taught like some Aristotle. of this last year. And, yeah, if you just read Aristotle, right, <laughs> which is, of course, you know, a walk in the park. I mean, so, um, <laughs> but yeah. Well, you guys are throwing recommendations in. Can I throw a couple yeah. recommendations oh, in? So I'm an IR guy, so this is outside my bailiwick entirely. There's mm-hmm. precious little written about Christian um, foreign policy. You should Although write it. Mark, uh, Mark Amstutz from Wheaton has a nice book on, on evangelical mm-hmm. foreign policy. But I'm going to suggest two books that vehemently disagree with each other. Um, the first is by the Anabaptist uh, John Howard Yoder, yeah. Um, yeah. who himself has fallen into some controversy for personal issues, and that, but I, I don't yeah. think it, I don't think it impacts his scholarship. And that's the the politics of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd recommend mm-hmm. looking at that. And then almost at the same time, try to read um, a book by Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, yeah. And Niebuhr was the it was within the Christian realm, nearly the very opposite of an of an Anabaptist. Um, Anabaptist uh, abjure violence and uh, adopt a pacifist way of life. And Niebuhr was making the case during the Cold War for the use of force to combat the greater evil of the Soviet Union mm-hmm. and the greater evil, mm-hmm. evil of godless communism. Mm-hmm. And both of them, I think, state their cases really eloquently, really mm-hmm. passionately, and they're worth reading in, in combination, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I, did my, I did my master's paper on Yoder's Politics of Jesus. Oh, did you really? Uh, wow. Yes, back in 04. Yeah. Yep. yep. What did you come yeah. up with? What did you conclude? Um, basically, I was critiquing his, his take. Um, I think that... Uh, while Yoder, I mean, his work is very eloquent. It's very well stated. It is a powerful argument for pacifism. Um, I think that he over-interprets Christ's actions as social um, to the exclusion of the spiritual. So he wants mm. to say that they all have these sort of practical social implications 
Um, and and his one of his big arguments is we know this is so because people around him understood this as what he was doing. Right. Um, and I, I just think that whole argument's rather problematic um, because, you know, it's also clear that Christ was not very happy with his disciples in the ways they were misunderstanding what he was doing, yep. mm-hmm. uh, which suggests that often their understanding was not, in fact, correct. And so uh, I think that's a little bit problematic. I also think he has to really um, sort of do some serious reimagining of Romans 13 in ways that just ultimately don't work. Um, and so I kind of critiqued him on that as well. But I, I still think it's a really, I mean, if you want a good case for pacifism, um, I think Yoder is about as good an inter- interlocutor as you can choose. Okay. Um, I, I ultimately still think it falls short, um, but it's, you're right, it's well worth wrestling with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sam, if you're still listening to this, by the way, Sam Alberry, our, our usual conspirator, is at a meeting. Um <laughs> You should not be surprised at that. But Sam usually listens to us a little bit to figure out what the, what the, what the episode title should be. And um, this should not be called the, luck, the Christian Political Theory Book Club. Um, <laughs> we actually came together today. Uh, we're nearing the uh, the end of Trump's first 100 days. Yeah, we often we're at 90. Hold up, what's that? We're at 90, I think. T- yeah, days so. 90? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Okay. Well, he's already starting to talk about his first 100 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, in fact, yesterday that he's had the most successful first 100 days of any president. Um which, with ten days to go. With ten days to go, so he's he's got some <laughs> he's got some margin for error. Uh, by any reasonable account, that's a profoundly dubious claim. But that said, well, we want to talk about Trump a little bit today. Uh, hundred days is usually a chance <laughs> to step back for political scientists to evaluate the early presidency mm-hmm. of a president to try to assess themes, trends, ideas, governing principles. And we talked about this before the election, or, or I'm sorry, before the inauguration, about what we would make of a Trump presidency and how, what kinds of things would guide it. And so now we're kind of going to grade ourselves here a little bit. And uh, Mitch has proposed we kind of uh, talk through a little bit of what, how do we describe the Trump presidency to this point? And I think it's, it's, it's going to be helpful to start with facts and then move to underlying, <laughs> then move to underlying principles. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to say start with facts and then just start making things up. Well, we'll do that. <laughs> that too. seems to be one of our, we our principles. We acknowledge that, but yes. Um, no, what I mean by that is let's talk about some of the big uh, hits and misses of the Trump administration. Sure. Sure. Ninety yeah. days in, Absolutely. we we we, uh, we have to start with the message policy. We have to start with the attempted repeal and replacement of Obamacare. Yeah. Right. This was largely done through Congress. Uh, Trump himself gave very little input to the actual legislation. This was handled by a, by a secret cabal of, of Republican uh, legislators, uh, much to the ire of some of the more conservative and libertarian uh, right. members like Rand Paul, who um, who, were, who were cut out of that uh, negotiation. Right. But ultimately, the, the legislation that was produced hewed more closely to the more conservative wing of the Republican Party, which did two things. It simultaneously lost moderate Republicans who saw members of their district losing health care coverage and uh, mm-hmm. didn't want to lose lose their seats because of that. And then the most conservative, very safest Republicans who weren't going to lose their seats no matter what thought it didn't go far enough. And it was right. just Obamacare light. And so went with, with faced with uh, desertions on both their left and right flank, uh, Paul Ryan eventually had to withdraw the legislation. Mm-hmm. Trump has occasionally mentioned that he wants to continue, wants to make this a success. He wants to right. try to bring this back, but there is no active movement right now to try to right. revise this policy at all. Um, that's a significant failure mm-hmm. in, the, in, the, mm-hmm. in the Trump uh, first hundred days. Yep. Uh, what other events do you guys want to think will think will be memorable hallmarks 
our points of this of this uh, first hundred days. I mean, for sure, the Gorsuch confirmation is huge, yes. right? I mean, like yep. not it's only probably his biggest win. It's his biggest win, yep. um, and and it's not only huge because, of course, that Gorsuch is now on the Supreme Court, um, and so he got somebody off his list. I mean, this is one of his big campaign promises. So I think it's his biggest win, but it's also a big event because of how it happened, right? I mean, the fact that they had to um, remove essentially the filibuster option for the Supreme Court. Um, to say that a nominee to the court can be confirmed with just a uh, you know simple majority, essentially, um, that's a you know that's a big change from past Senate policy. It's not a shocking change. The Senate's been moving in this direction for a while. I mean, the Bush administration, uh, Bill Frist, the then Senate Majority Leader, mm-hmm. talked about doing this in '05. Um, Harry Reid had basically done it for everything other than the Supreme Court in '13. And and one sense is that if you know if there had been a Supreme Court nominee in '13 and the Republicans had held up that person. Um, Reed might well have done it then for that as well. I mean, mm-hmm. One of the reasons he didn't remove it for the Supreme Court is it never came up. I mean, there were no nominees between 13 and when they lost the majority in 14, right? So, um, so I think there's... Do you think he would have at that time? Yes. Okay. I think he would have. I mean, I think he... Um, so this wasn't know. judicious in his part, but it <laughs> Nice. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I think he would have if he'd had to, right? I mean, yeah. and I, he, he didn't have to, so, you know, why do it, right? But... Um, so I, you know, I think that was that was really big because that that will change the way the Senate works beyond the Trump years. Sure. I mean, again, this is not a result of Trump as much as you know, sort of a direction the Senate's been moving in because of party polarization. But it's still, a, I think, a really a big moment to point to. Yeah, and obviously this isn't my field of expertise, but <laughs> um, but also the various military right. um, excursions that we're already seeing. So right. launching the uh, missiles uh, into Syria, and then also. Uh, you know, at least at least um, making a larger show of some of the things that are happening in, in Afghanistan with dropping the um, the Moab, the Moab, Moab. right, and uh, things like that. So, so he seems to be indicating anyway that he wants to ramp up um, military involvement in the Middle East. Um, uh, that's the indication. Although I would say there has been a, a lot of real action on that part yet. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, sending fifty nine Tomahawk missiles into uh, airfield in Syria. Is pretty small potatoes when it comes to actually attempting to undermine right. or overthrow right. the Assad government. It's a nice show of force. It might also show the Russians that we're willing to do that. It's also a test to see how the Russians react. And by the way, I'm coming that for one of my students. Um, <laughs> thank you, Elias. Um, but it's uh, it's also, I think, for my own part, I think it's a it's a it's a it's a message to the North Koreans, which mm-hmm. he was also uh, working with the Chinese yeah. uh, the Chinese president when it, when this happened too. But all the same. Trump hasn't deviated wildly from how Obama ended his presidency mm-hmm. in terms of military yeah. action at this point. Yeah. And in some ways, nope. he's reversed himself on a number of key issues where he differed from Obama right. to be in line with traditional internationalist foreign policy of the post-Cold War era, yeah. which stretched mm-hmm. across Bush and Clinton and Bush and Obama. Things like supporting the Import-Export Bank mm-hmm. and um, validating the usefulness of NATO, which he'd previously criticized. Right. Mm-hmm. These things yeah. are continuances. They're important shifts for Trump, but they're shifts back to the status quo. Right. And I think right. I think maybe the biggest thing for me in some ways, even more in and maybe maybe even more than the two than the things we've already mentioned, is actually the way the Trump administration itself has conducted the executive. Yes. So thinking about uh, early on in the first few days um, when Trump issued uh, the executive order um, that was later overturned to try to limit immigration um, mm-hmm. from various countries yes. and impose various tests. Um, You're good. This was next on my list. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, I think I think that um, 
it was it was it was both an important signal um, at the at the time um, about what about what kind of president he wanted to be, um, but it also ultimately was also the first major uh, slip or failure. Um, in, it is interesting in though that they haven't continued to push that after yeah. initial revision, which was also held up in a Hawaii court. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, there's been no further efforts to. Right. To delimit travel or to delimit immigration in yep, the Trump right. administration. Yeah, and, and I, so and so I think and I think that um, in itself uh, was a sort of a, maybe a, a major learning moment for the Trump administration. But uh, but I think but I think that uh, failure was actually kind of a big um, moment that you know because early on the president you know Trump was sort of this wild card. Um, nobody, mm-hmm. everyone was kind of speculating what's right. he going to do, what's he going to do, and then he started doing things and it didn't work out immediately. And I think right. that was. Um, Sort of, sort of a major turning point in some ways, even though it was within the first few days. And I think related to that too, we also have seen um, basically just the the way Trump has tried to conduct the executive has been um, both abnormal, mm-hmm. um, but also uh, perhaps perhaps not quite as it's not gone quite as smoothly as he as he had hoped. Oh, I think it's right. pretty mildly. So yes, absolutely. He, he remains a deeply unpopular president. Right. Um, his unpopularity reached its nadir. Uh, well, his popularity reached its nadir um, during the health care uh, rep- attempted right. repeal. Yeah. It's since cl- climbed up somewhat, and it, mm-hmm. it shot up a little bit uh, after the airstrikes. Uh, yeah. The public tends to rally around the president during times of military action. Right. But those, those rallies, especially for, sh- for smaller events, are tend to be short-lived. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think especially seeing um, the way the president has basically shifted in terms of who his advisors are, yes. who the people he's put in charge of various things are. Um, you know, we, you know, the Michael Flynn right. uh, re- resignation very early on. Right. Um, the fact that it seems like um, Kushner is on the rise and Ivanka mm-hmm. um, and perhaps seeing Steve Bannon on his way out. Um, all of these, all of these sorts of rapid shifts just within mm-hmm. the sort of the White House staff and the, um, you know, basically those those close advisory positions right. um, has been something that I think has really defined um, this administration. I mean, just thinking about the last hundred days. Mm-hmm. Is, it, yeah. is it fair to say that there are uh, three surging camps inside the Republican Party and that they're fighting for the soul of the Trump administration? The, the first camp being uh, traditional, socially conservative, perhaps tied with the evangelical Christian faith, uh, uh, Republicans. Mm-hmm. The second one being the libertarian, small government, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily religious, but uh, but economically right. focused Republicans. Yeah. And I'd, I'd say Paul Ryan is sort of a mix of those two categories. And then the third category being sort of uh, nationalist, uh, more willing to spend money, more mm-hmm. willing to exercise military force, but deeply skeptical of international institutions, deeply skeptical of of liberalism in any capacity mm-hmm. um, and Steve Bannon represents this and, and this is and this has more links to sort of more radical fringe groups of the, mm-hmm. inside the Republican Party mm-hmm. specifically ones based on race and nationalism and Bannon is appears to be losing power in the in the, uh, in the Trump administration and we don't really know I don't, do you have a sense of where people like Ivanka and Jared Kushner are at within those camps yeah, they certainly don't seem like white I mean, nationalists to me you know well, I mean, this comes back to sort of the, the fact that Trump is not even really a Republican in some ways, right? I mean, like that he's somebody who. So he's none of those three so, camps. Well, I, think, I, think I, I don't know that he is. A, camp, actually, what's that? No, go ahead. But, yeah. I, I don't know that he's yeah deeply loyal to any of them. I mean, he. he I mean, if I try to think about what's at the core of Donald Trump, I mean, I think he is. 
He's probably a most sympathetic center? with the last one, right? <laughs> what's that? You said what's a core Donald Trump? A chocolatey center? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. So, um, but he, I think he's, um, I think he's essentially a, a businessman who's pragmatic about things. He wants to get things mm-hmm. done, and he wants to work with people who you know want to try to help do that. And so, mm-hmm. you know, he's allied with all those groups in different ways at different times. Um, and so that, I think that gives all of them an opportunity. But I'm just not sure he has some sort of core beliefs. And with Ivanka and Jared Kushner too, it just seems like they're much more about sort of pragmatic, you know, what they think is going to work. Right. Um, and so they're, therefore who they think they're more socially with. moderate, which would take uh, I think they're more orders. socially moderate. I think that's yeah. fair. Um, but again, it's just, it's really hard to pin any of these people down. I don't really know, yeah. you know, where exactly do they stand? What do they care about? Cause they're not really political. They're not really political people who have this sort of long track record we can point to. Uh, they're people who've done other things with their lives. And so, you know, it's not necessarily all very directly yeah translatable to politics and it doesn't really clue us in on what their politics are. Kushner and Tillerson, the Secretary of State, have proved particularly inscrutable mm-hmm. in, their, in their ability to divine their political yeah. beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. Mitch, you were going to say there's a fourth category? No, I, th- I, th- I, think, I think it might be another category too, and maybe this one um, is too... I don't know how to say it, but maybe 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 too blunt in that it's not sort of an, a necessarily an ideology in the sort of classic sense where we think mm-hmm. about like social conservatism or libertarianism or nationalism or something like that. But um, it's basically just um, you know ba- basically a commitment to to um, to business and mm-hmm. to wanting mm-hmm. right. and to profits for for. Can Wall we call Street. that Calvin Coolidgeism. So well, we could. I mean, we could sort of think of it. I think maybe you could unkindly call neoconservatism mm-hmm. that. Um, mm-hmm. But I, that I. You you might you know uh, you might be able to argue there's more to neoconservatism than that, but you might mm-hmm. not be able to either. Okay. <laughs> um, so so and and I think that might be playing a role here as well. I think if we're thinking about somebody like Reince Priebus, mm-hmm. um, sure, I think he absolutely might sort of be more in the camp of just saying you know we want to exert American power and have American um, influence and and do things that are going to help the economy because. By helping the economy, we mean, you know, ramping up Wall Street, making mm-hmm. sure that the profits are at right. their absolute max, um, and, you know, maybe doing some lip service to sort of the trickle-down ideas that, you know, all of this will help all of Americans, um, but that at the core, mm-hmm. it's really just about how can we maximize profits and maximize, um, you know, the, the the raw economy, not necessarily mm-hmm. the, right. what, what's mm-hmm. going to help uh, you know lo- uh, regular Americans. Well, and to connect your point with Chris's, I think then it... I think that's probably right, and and it seems like that's one reason why the Trump people have allied a lot with that sort of right-wing nationalist types, because they seem to have the most in common with mm-hmm. that view, right? Yeah. It's like, it's about looking out for the business of America, bottom line, that kind of right. thing. But then I think there is a discomfort among certain people in the Trump camp, probably including Jared and Ivanka and, and maybe, you know, Trump himself, with certain aspects of that kind of mm-hmm. white nationalist right. um, approach, right? Because I'm not sure they're... They're quite that far out there. Because business-oriented, business-interested politicians probably aren't interested in protectionism. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, They're probably interested in free trade and open markets. Yep. So there's there's an odd um, juxtaposition here. Yeah. And and I think that's part of you know that's probably part of the reason why Steve Bannon has been increasingly Mm -hmm. sidelined. He doesn't particularly fit with you know this this goal of trying to maximize you know business interests. So do you buy my characterization right. that there's sort of a Game of Thrones-like struggle inside the Trump administration for which one of these <laughs> things controls the mind of the president? Um, I think I think there might be something to that in that 
um, that he, he put in people that have different influences. Although I do Definitely. think I do think the sort of the Christian um, influence is very much absent um, for any of his major advisors. I mean, you look at the people who are very very close to the president. I mean, you think about Steve Bannon, Reince Priebus. Maybe if you include like I guess the closest you might be able is like maybe Paul Ryan to the extent that Paul Ryan is right. is, is is able to advise the no, president. What's Jerry, what's Jerry Falwell Jr. doing? Uh, he's, from what President I can see, Liberty. he's been yeah. I mean, he's been very silent. I mean, he doesn't seem yeah. to have any kind of mm-hmm. real. Betsy, De- role. Betsy DeVos, no. So yeah, not not not. Really. I don't think she's okay. a central player either. Yeah. I mean, I think that you know, it seems to me like what he's done with that that group, and I think that this is you know, especially the election of Trump really has made it clear that this is what that what you can do with that that part of the party, right? Is that you only have to give them certain things, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to actually make them central players. Um, Trump was not Feed him a social policy cookie and they go away more or less. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, what, what we learned about the Christian right, unfortunately, in this election is that they were willing to, you know, to go with a candidate who is a thrice married um, person with a, a long record of adultery, a long record of inconsistency on every social position that they care about. Yeah. Um, so some gay some marriage, abortion. What's yeah. that? Some very damn remarks about some very, yeah, some absolutely horrible and unacceptable remarks. And they were still willing to vote for that person because they felt like he was less terrible of an option and would give them better policies than what you know the the other one would, um, and that seems to mostly mean a few key social issues, right? And so abortion. he more or less by if, as long as he doesn't sort of start infringing our religious liberties, um, which I think he isn't, and he as long as he appoints some decent people to the court, which I think they they were very happy with his first pick, yep. um, then. He's got that one taken care of. He doesn't really need to let them into the inner circle, and he doesn't need to sort of carry this out in every other realm. So I think you're right. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. think I don't think they have a major role, and I don't think he needs to give them a major role to mm-hmm. keep their vote. As long as he keeps yeah. appointing people like Gorsuch um, to the major court positions that come up, um, sure. be it the Supreme Court or the top of heels courts, you know, he keeps that group happy, and I don't think he cares all that much about those. So that's a pretty easy sop to throw them. I mean, you just let them handle the court stuff, yeah. and then you can kind of keep moving forward. So many of my conservative evangelical friends that I'm connected with um, prior to the election said, I'm voting for this. The ones who voted for Trump said, mm-hmm. I'm voting for this guy for the Supreme Court pick. Yep. Which seems to suggest too. they would vote for yeah. almost anyone who would get them the appropriate Supreme Court pick. Correct. Do you think they're now satisfied? I mean, Gorsuch is a win in that case. I mean, Gorsuch yes. will um, is, is what evangelicals in that, in that camp would want. Mm-hmm. They yep. say, well, fine. I got what I wanted. Are they, are they happy now? That's a good question that so I haven't come back and had that conversation with um, these these friends personally. So I, I would like to have that at some point. I mean, because the, the question is, I mean, I think they're absolutely happy about Gorsuch. I mean, I yeah. think that, and that's, that's you know, he was a good can I, pick. Can I just say, um, I, I don't think, I, I think I'm well to the left of him, but I'm happy with Gorsuch. Mm-hmm. Of the kinds of folks that Trump yeah. could have nominated, Gorsuch oh, yeah. is highly qualified. Yes, he pushes the court in the conservative direction, but yeah. um, he, I think he's a serious thinker. And yeah. of all the decisions Trump has made, I, I'm, I, can, I can live with that one. Right. No, I yeah. totally agree. Um, but what would be interesting to have as a conversation with those evangelical friends is, so is that, was that worth it, right? In other words, mm-hmm. you got the great pick for the court. I mean, he is a great pick from a conservative standpoint. Um, and you're right. I mean, he's objectively really well qualified and a very you know reasonable thinker and so forth. But um, was it worth it to get that as opposed to Merrick Garland, who was also a good guy in a lot Absolutely. of ways, very well qualified, all that, right. very even, except that he was to the left, right? Um, oh, to be, although, to be fair, that blame goes to Mitch McConnell, not to Donald Trump. Right, right. But but just imagine like an alternate world in which Hillary Clinton gets elected and they, they confirm Garland, right? Oh, sure. And then you get more stable behavior in the president, probably, right? Um, so is it worth it, right, to sort of put up all these other kind of things that are going on mm-hmm. in the Trump administration and not you know, not getting things done on health care and so forth? I mean, you know, it turns out that you know we elect 
Trump to get rid of Obamacare, but probably it's going to stay, mm-hmm. which is what would have happened under right. Hillary too. Um, so is, was it worth it to sort of accept all those other things for the court? And that's that's the conversation I'd be interested to have. My guess is they say yes. Right? My guess is yeah. Sure. No, the court's so important um, to protect religious liberty and you know to preserve traditional values and so forth that yeah, it's worth it. Um, but that's that's the interesting question. Yeah. Um, can I ask you guys a counterfactual? Sure. If uh, Hillary had won instead, we're 90 days into the Clinton administration. What are we talking about? A deadlock with Congress. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yep. Although, with that said, I, I wonder if she would have been able to find at least some small thing that they could have done to reform the Affordable Care Act. Uh, if she would have been able to find some compromise for something. Hmm. I don't know. It seems, I'm not sure what that would have been. I'm not sure if it would have been um, somehow... somehow uh, changing the subsidy structure or something like that. Um, but I don't know. But maybe you mean not. Like, you mean like the, I think the block grants the government gives to states? Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's possible. Some, some, something that would maybe give a little bit there's to a, There's sides. a technocratic feature to how those, al- those are allocated that I think yeah. could, be, could be tweaked. Yeah. Right. Yeah, um, I, could see, I could see something. And I think she would have had – I mean, she obviously has the experience and the policy chops um, to know how maybe where, where, where you could make that kind of compromise yeah. Yeah. Um, that Trump obviously didn't have. She um, said – that she supported military action to respond to the chemical attack in Syria. Yeah, I think that might have turned out as 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 much as as Trump did. She may have done it, and perhaps mm-hmm. more. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, think that's, that's absolutely right. That's probably right. In fact, I think the odds are very good she does more because yeah. I mean, one of the things that's been interesting with um, when you have women come into the the highest office, right, um, is there is sometimes a, I think a. They feel a sense of a need to prove themselves. Like this you say, the we're not going to... The Margaret Thatcher kind of argument, right? I mean, like, that you can't be seen as weak, right? You don't want to. You don't want people to think, though, because you, we have the first female president in America, that this is a person who can be run over. And so sometimes they feel like a need to actually do more right, than a man might, man might because we need to make sure that people know, mm-hmm. you know, this is going to be business as usual. The United States is still the greatest superpower. And that is not changing because of the gender of the president has changed, right? Um, so, um, so I actually would have thought she might have done actually more than he did mm-hmm. in Syria. But, um, you know, I think we're also probably talking about the fact that she managed to get a Supreme Court nominee through. Um, Good point. Because she probably would have. I think that the Republicans would have had to bend enough to say, you know what, we don't like this person, but fine. You know, like right. you got elected and we said we're going to let the president appoint somebody. So, yeah. Do we think... Do we think is the Trump administration atypical in the amount of personnel scandals that they have ha- they've had, especially Michael Flynn, but Steve Bannon being a being a lightning rod as well? Would we have be, would be having similar kinds of stories in a Hillary Clinton administration? I'm going to say yes, actually, because the Clintons have been a uh, they've been a lightning rod for this kind of stuff. They usually do something weird with people, and um, <laughs> I mean, just it does feel like they have, they have these strange two stories swirling <laughs> around and. So, you know, I actually don't like both. No, don't know that there's that many. There, there would have been fewer. I mean, it, might have been, it would have been different kinds of people and different kinds of issues, mm-hmm. sure. But, but I'm I'm guessing we'd have had a couple of them. And yeah. it feels like even with all the confusion, the Trump administration that you're really going. I mean, the main story is Flynn, and then to a lesser yeah. extent, Bannon and DeVos, and then what's this? Um, Perzder who had to withdraw, Puzder, whatever his name Puzder. was. Anyway. Um, you know, he. You know, but but I mean. There's usually going to be a couple of those, and so I'm guessing it wouldn't actually have been significantly less. But. Okay. Yeah. Um, this far in now, we're talking about different uh, ideologies or, or camps fighting for the soul of the Trump administration. 
Do you have a sense, 90 days in, of how Donald Trump is working his way through being president? What's do we have a sense? I mean, I know this. I'm a I'm a political psychology guy, so this is this you know how people tick matters a lot to me. But do we know more about Donald Trump than we did 90 days ago? Uh, I don't know that we know more about Donald. I, well, I guess I guess we know more in the sense that we you know he's actually had to make some decisions, and mm-hmm. I think I think yeah. that in itself has been revealing perhaps of a couple of things. So I think it started out, you know, people were kind of wondering, would he be, you know, more of the nationalist, you know, right. follow Steve Bannon. And I think that was what people expected, especially because that was where a lot of his campaign rhetoric tended. So right. he would, mm-hmm. you know, even the slogan, make, you know, make America great again, kind of hues to that sort of um, ideology, right? That we're yeah, gonna, basically, ideology. yeah, this nationalist idea that we're going to do what's best for the American people. We're not going to worry as much about, you know, what's good for big business. We're not going to worry about what's good for, um, you know, other nations. We're going to be very, you know, sort of isolationist and um, just just very much focus on, you know, what's what's right here. And um, that, you know, what and 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 I think what we've seen is that that was m- probably mostly rhetoric. Um, it certainly seems to be that way now. Yeah, I mean, because basically, you know, you saw... The, the travel ban certainly fit that model. But the travel ban did, but it failed. And he, you know, as you guys right. pointed out, you know, he hasn't really returned to this. This doesn't seem to be a priority for him. Um, at least it doesn't anymore. And, uh, you know, Steve Bannon seems to be, you know, getting sidelined. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing policies like the way that the um, Health Care Act um, looked, you know, mm-hmm. it was very much like a basically a tax cut for the wealthy that reduced the amount of care that would be available for regular Americans. Um, you, you know, basically the tax reform ideas that have been kicked around have very much centered on, you know, corporate tax cuts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just there just doesn't seem to be a whole lot for, um, you know, a nationalist group. And of course, and especially now that he's become at least gone back to, you know, sort of the uh, President Obama level military action, you mm-hmm. don't seem to see a lot of withdrawal, which is exactly right. what sort of the nationalist um, group. Yeah, would, sort of a neo-isolationist Right. Yep. You have more of an isolationist, you know, withdrawal and, you know, wanting to ramp up the military and, uh, you know, antagonize North Korea and things mm-hmm. like that it seems mm-hmm. to be the exact opposite of what, in fact, I, I so I read, um, a few, a few of these people, I kind of follow them online, and they are furious. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a lot of people in sort of the um, mm-hmm. sort of more Steve Bannon, um, Pat Buchanan type group that are right. just have absolutely had it with with Trump. I mean, they're done. <laughs> I mean, they were they were relatively these get primary from the right, <laughs> right? And so you right. know, and now they're basically saying, you know, he's betrayed us. He's not, you know, the kind of person that that uh, you know. And of course, in, in fairness, you know, somebody like Pat Buchanan who maybe has is uh, you know not. Is, is is a little bit more of a thinking person, perhaps than um, in some ways. He's a, yeah, he he's, was already skeptical. He has a firmer ideology, right? He was already skeptical to begin with, um, but nonetheless, this is mm-hmm. sort of kind of mm-hmm. said, you know, you're, you know, he's he's, he, you know, you're you're done. This, this yeah. he clearly doesn't seem to be the kind of person that that, that you want to support if you're, uh, you know, the America First nationalist. Yeah. Um. So I so I do think we're kind of seeing that. And now mm-hmm. the question is, and this is what I'm sort of waiting to see, is we knew Trump already had bad approval ratings, but do they go down? Right. And I'm going to be interested to see here in the next, you know, coming weeks here, if this if this penetrates to public opinion where people actually realize that, you know, the person they voted for didn't follow through on their rhetoric. Right. And what do you think of him right. now? And my guess is, I mean, just given the fact that public opinion, people don't know that much, is it's probably not going to change. Most mm. people probably haven't figured out that Trump yep. isn't following yep. through this campaign rhetoric. Yeah, Nate Silver um, predicts no special bounce for Trump towards the midterms. He's, right. he's seen yeah. the midterm shaping up badly for the Republicans, which is interesting because right after the election, 
the the conventional wisdom was the 2018 elections look great for Republicans. Um, they set up well demographically, and now that's flipped. Yeah. But when he says badly, as in they'll lose some seats, or they'll actually lose majorities. He think he thinks the Senate is almost insurmountable. That Republicans will hold the Senate almost no matter what. Right. Unless yeah. there's an utter meltdown. And Just uh, the but the, but yeah. the way things are trending right now, there's a decent chance the Democrats could take control of the House. Really? Wow. And, that, be and, bef- and before it was like, no, they, they'll shore up their shore up their wins, their gains. Right. Um, be, yeah, I would still be a little surprised if they take the House, but we'll see. Yeah, silver is usually pretty good. Yeah, I'll just say one other thing. Sure, please. I know I've been talking a lot here. That's fine. I'll say, I'll say one more thing, and that is that uh, one of the things that I think is interesting to watch too. And you had mentioned this before when you were describing healthcare, which was very nice. Um, one of the things you, you know when you described it, you talked about the libertarian or the or the sort of the freedom caucus, the freedom caucus, right? And so and so what I think of when I think of those is not necessarily like that they are quote unquote more conservative because I think conservative is a contested. Um, title, yeah. You know, title. I think the people who get branded as quote unquote moderates are often the people who are, in fact, more consistent with, you know, like Russell Kirk, sure. um, you know, Burkean mm-hmm. conservatism than, um, you know, than, 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 uh, than the people who are in the Freedom Caucus who right. are much more like, you know, Hayek. If they're well read, and Rand, if they are, yep. <laughs> um, and uh, there's our title, um, Sam. So yeah, um, but uh, anyway, but you, know, but they're the more libertarian wing, and and I do think it's yeah. interesting to see. I think one of the things that we're perhaps watching, and this is something that I um, think is very interesting, just as you know, sort of watching uh, re- the Republican parties try to figure out what it means to be conservative, is we really are seeing libertarianism get more and more pushed to the fringes. Mm-hmm. Yep. And libertarianism, I mean, Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan himself described himself as a libertarian. Mm-hmm. And so to think about the fact that we're seeing libertarianism pushed as now the quote-unquote fringe or, right. you know, as you describe them, the more extreme, right. you know, conservatives as, is, is an interesting development, I think. And I think Trump has something, or at least is a reflection of that. Yeah, Although, to be, to, be, to be fair with the Reagan comment, Reagan was far less dogmatic of a libertarian than, oh, say, yes. Rand Paul is. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, Ronald Reagan grew the size of the government, which is uh, an anthem to modern right. libertarians. Right. But yeah, he made absolutely. it feel like he was not, right? right. So that's, that was key. I mean, I think, to come back to your original question, Chris, I mean, sort of, you know, is this what we expected with Donald Trump? I mean, what, if, what kind of, what have we learned about Think Donald about the Trump? Denny Green uh, right. post, and, co- post-game uh, talk. People yeah. are who we thought they were. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, and I, I really do think Trump is... This is not surprising, right? I mean, like, yes, he's not keeping his promises to these people. Um, that's exactly what they should have expected. If they yeah, had, if they had thought, and this was what a lot of people told them during the campaign. So, you know, I feel no sympathy for these kind of voters, right? I mean, like, <laughs> who are disappointed because I say, look, look at who Donald Trump is. Look at what his background is. Look at what has characterized him throughout his career, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, he is what he is, right? And, and in that sense, I don't think we have Donald Trump has you know shown us that he will govern the way that we kind of thought he probably would, which is kind of incoherently because he's not really, he doesn't have a co- coherent philosophy of government. Um, and, and kind of looking out for the big, parties. what's that? And because he's getting advice from different He's getting camps. advice from multiple groups, so sort of whoever yells the loudest at the right moment, right, and in the right meeting. Um, but, you know, it's, I mean, he's he's really looking out for sort of the, you know, the, the major elite interests more than in, he's going to look out for these sort of common common men, right? And so I, I don't think, I mean, that's a very surprising result. So even though he's articulating those mm-hmm. things on on the campaign trail, I mean, it just it never looked like he had a coherent plan to how how he would do this. It was just sort of like, trust me, I'll do this. Yeah. And it's like, but if we trust you, look at what you've done, right? What have you looked out for? Or who have you looked out for in your career? It's not these kind of people, right? So I think that yeah. um, in that sense, it's not at all surprising. The other thing that's not surprising to me and, and is disappointing, though, um, is that 
you know, the sort of the lack of focus of Donald Trump and the mm -hmm. lack of ability to step it up. I mean, so mm -hmm. in my most optimistic moments after the election, <laughs> I hope that Donald Trump would really sort of be struck by the seriousness of becoming president um, and that he would find a way to be the adult in the room. That he would stop doing things like tweeting at, you know, um, random people for random things. Right. And that he would really be able to focus. And I don't think we've seen that focus. I mean, sometimes that foc the lack of focus works out. Right. I mean, so, for example, on the immigration issue that you raised earlier, I mean, I think his lack of focus is one of the reasons that he's dropped it. I mean, like he, he made his attempt. Mm -hmm. It fell apart because he didn't even consult the right people in government to realize that he was right. issuing essentially an illegal, you know, executive order that was violating the law. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, but once he, he didn't work out, he's, he you know, fussed about it, tweeted about it, and then he, he's just dropped it and he's doing nothing. And essentially our policy is unchanged, right? right. And so um, that shows a lack of focus, right? Mm -hmm. and, I, and that's not surprising because that's kind of who Trump was in the campaign. Um, he's a, you know, a celebrity more than a sort of focused political leader. But but it's, yeah, it's, it is a little disappointing because you just kind of hope that like, maybe he'll actually step up and really be able to focus and get something good done. On this issue of focus... I've heard at least four times, I'll try and remember, I remember them all, that Trump has become a more a normal president, a typical president. Really? We heard, well, hold on. <laughs> we heard this wow. uh, when he issued remarks in, uh, in condemnation of Syria for launching a chemical attack. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, they said, uh, commentators said, oh, he appears very presidential now. This is what a normal <laughs> president would do. Not tweet them, for example. And then, <laughs> and then after the State of the Union address. Well, I'm yeah. sorry. Mm -hmm. the joint, just for the joint session of Congress. Right. In the first year, it's not called the State of the Union address. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> but whatever. When in his joint his address to Congress, he spoke from the teleprompter. He said very traditional Republican lines. He did not specifically sound like Donald Trump, right. either in person or yep. on Twitter. Yep. And people said, oh, he's turned the corner. He's going to become a normal president now. And then that evaporated. Right. And then more recently... Uh, I can't remember now who the commentator was on CNN, but someone said, "Well, now that he's used, uh, now that he's used these airstrikes, like this has made him into a real president." And we keep—is this just gonna be something we're going to be hearing now for the next? At a certain point, we don't say Donald Trump is going to become a normal president. We say Donald Trump is to who Donald Trump is, mm -hmm. and sometimes he appears like a normal president, but most of the time he appears like one of the more aberrant political leaders we've had in modern American life. Yeah, and I think that's much closer to the truth. I mean, yeah. I think. He can definitely have moments where he can sort of be be in that more normal zone. I mean, it yeah. just reminds me of the debates, right? I mean, like, he had the, those debates where sometimes, like, in the first half hour, he would be really on on his game. He'd be pretty focused. Like, he could do it. He could do it yeah. for a bit, right? Mm -hmm. But he couldn't hold it together for 90 minutes. Sure. Um, he never had – in none of the three debates did he ever, you know, have a debate where he really – was super focused for the entire time, right? Mm -hmm. um, but he had moments where he looked like a very normal sort of political debater. And, and so I think that's that's probably going to be true of his presidency, too. Yeah. It, I don't think we're going to reach that sort of traditional normalcy. Having said that, we, what we will get is we, we will get used to the Donald Trump version of normalcy. And I think we already are to some extent, right? I mean, yes. uh, and so then that, that then changes what we expect out of the president, which is going to be interesting for the next occupant of the White House. But well, it's going to be interesting even for the rest of this, of the rest of this term. And well, that's that, what that I, something else I wanted to ask <laughs> the two of you. We've talked about Trump's uh, historically low approval numbers up until recently. And I want to talk to you about bars, not not taverns uh, yeah, or, or rhymes. Uh, but, uh, but the bar that Donald Trump has to get over to mm -hmm. win re-election. And I'm actually somewhat more 
confident in Trump's capacity to get reelected than perhaps with the, the, the tone mm-hmm. of this conversation is taken. Yeah. Because yep. we saw this as well in the primaries as well as the general election. Uh, Trump does pretty well when presented with a low bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Being now in the somewhere between the high 30s and low and high 40s for his in general his approval ratings actually the airstrikes they top out at like 51 percent but they're mostly in the in the high 30s to, to high 40s you would say that that person has no hope of getting reelected that's a terrible approval rating but it doesn't take much for him to do some things well in the second half of this presidency mm-hmm. for people to, who have short-term memories to say this is the best he's done he's getting better this is mm-hmm. things are better mm-hmm. than they were and that might be enough to make him a pretty competitive candidate in 2020. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, because it's all about the trend line. The other thing to note about these approval ratings is that it's not, I mean, it's not entirely a fair comparison to some of the past presidents because he starts off so much lower, right? I mean, so Obama, for example, came in in 2008 in his in first term having won 53% of the vote. Yeah, and, so and approval ratings in the mid-60s. And his and approval ratings in the mid-60s, right? So two things have happened. One is, that, I mean, Obama started off with about 7% more of the vote anyway. Yeah. The people who actually went and voted for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and... He was a more inspirational candidate, to put it mildly, mm-hmm. right? So well, that gives some I mean, people who are moderate. To be fair, there are, there are people who are inspired by Trump. Oh, but, sure. But, I mean, more broadly. like Yes, broadly. more broadly, a really like. positive vision, whereas Trump's like, you know, things are really bad and I'm the one who can make it great. Yes. But, um, you know, Obama's was much more hopeful, sort of broadly hopeful and inspirational. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we've also become much more polarized, right? I mean, I think yes. after eight years of Obama, we are a much more polarized nation than we were in 2009, right? And so I think it's harder to get people who aren't already in your camp to join, right? So I think when you look at Trump's numbers, I mean, what strikes me is, yeah, they're low, especially for a president at this point. On the other hand, he won the lowest percentage of the popular vote of any president to win the election since Bill Clinton in 92, mm-hmm. um, who was in a, a three-way race, right? So it wasn't quite really quite the same situation. Um, and, you know, we would expect them to be lower, right? Especially given the increase in polarization. So I, I think that's that's one point. And the other thing is, I think you're right about the re-election. I think he has actually a very decent chance because not only is the bar low and he could sort of clear it, and he's done well with that in the past. The other thing is, I mean, you have to look at the other side. You can't beat somebody with right. nobody. And the Democratic mm-hmm. group of contenders is a really big problem. Yes. I just am I'm looking at that group and I'm saying I don't see it. I don't see who they've got. That they're going to send up against Trump, who can really Kendrick um, Lamar make you? What's that? Can, Kendrick Lamar. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, but I mean, who do, who do you have, right? And that's I think that's a, going to be a really big challenge for them. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And I think I think just getting to your polarization points too. I mean, I think that's really been borne out in the reactions that we've seen on the left. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the mm-hmm. fact that there has been, um, and, and 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 at times for you know there there have been you know. Some arguably some good reasons for this, you know, but you've seen an mm-hmm. immediate reaction of protest, and, right, right. you know, basically things like the Women's March on Washington, which really, um, yeah, one day into exemplifies, right, exemplifies this yep. um, deeper divide that we're seeing. And I, th- I think one other thing, though, just getting back to why Trump may win re-election too, because um, I, I agree with all of these things, but I think Trump also does a really good job. If there's one thing he's good at, it's casting himself as the victim, right. Mm. And I think you know, despite the fact yep. that he sort of rails against sort of like social justice warriors and 
all this mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. are victim. You know, Trump is the king of this. He is oh, yeah. brilliant yeah. at saying, like, yeah. I am up against, you know, the, the media and I'm up against the Republican Party and I'm up against the yeah. Democrats and I'm up against, <laughs> you know, everybody. So Ain't nobody like me, nobody. No. Yeah. yeah. And so and so he is constantly casting himself as 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 the victim. And mm-hmm. people do tend to sympathize with him on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, despite the fact that he's an incredibly powerful, you know, has one of the biggest microphones of any person ever is mm-hmm. extremely wealthy. Now you meant that figuratively, but it's also possible he has a giant microphone. It is possible. Well, but it's that's true. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's the biggest microphone. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, despite the fact that he comes into it with all of these incredible advantages and, mm-hmm. you know, right. the name recognition and everything else, somehow he always manages to cast himself as this downtrodden victim right. who's being attacked. Right. And um, that seems to sell. People, yeah. people uh, yep. rally around him for that reason. Yep, that's right. And I think he'll, he'll be able to do that again. <clears throat> and, and the thing is, I mean, he is, you know, he is a kind of a dynamic personality in his way, right? I mean, and and again, we, we tend to elect people who have more personality. And when I look at the Democratic bench for 2020, I'm just, I'm wondering who they put up against him that is going to have the personality to go toe-to-toe. Um, that was one of the things that hurt Hillary Clinton. She really couldn't. I mean, I think, yeah. you know, I think a Bill Clinton or a Barack Obama might have been able to beat him, right? But, but they didn't does have somebody. Does beating him mean looking more presidential, or does it mean being more combative? Well, it depends on how badly he does at the sort of presidential part. Um, but mm-hmm. if he if he can clear his low bar and people accept that low bar, mm-hmm. um, then I think it ends up meaning something about being more combative and being successful, sort of winning that toe to toe, and that's gonna be challenging because mm-hmm. Trump's pretty good in the, you know, those those he he can go, get down there and get dirty. It's true. Um, well, I guess what I, what I would say to, to kind of wrap this up a little bit is that those of you who are watching the Trump administration, maybe you're uh, one of our students and this is your first election you've really paid a lot of attention to, don't read too much into these first 90 days. Right. It is entirely possible that – the well, not entirely possible. It is a given that there will be ups and downs to the Trump presidency oh, yeah. Yeah. for years to come. Uh, he, there will be a pre- and post-midterm election uh, presidency. Mm-hmm. Yep. And – we should not. We should be much too careful to read too much into these tea leaves of these first hundred days. Right. I do not want to definitively conclude that Donald Trump is not going to win re-election or that he is going to win re-election. Right. Right. Uh, there's, it's far too early to Way know. Way too early. Yeah. And, and one of the classic examples from history too, we've, we've already mentioned, is uh, Bill Clinton himself. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bill Clinton had a right. horrible first couple of years. Dead in the water in 1993. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just at yeah. defeat after defeat in terms of legislation, in terms yeah. of foreign policy, all kinds of just terrible things. And yet. Uh, in his second two years after the Republicans took over, they right. managed to pass legislation. He seemed to turn things around, and he won re-election handily. Mm-hmm. Good point. Yeah, and, that, and in that sense, I mean, like, if the Republicans were to lose the House or were to get really close, right, in, in 18, I mean, that could actually work to Trump's advantage. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he, having a Democratic House for his re-election could be a really good thing. So, I mean, there's, you know, you, you need to be careful what you wish for if you're the mm-hmm. Democrats, right? I mean, if you yeah. get if you get the House majority back, in 2018, that's good in some ways, but it could be really bad in others, as the Clinton example points out. Yeah. Yeah. One thing we should talk about, too, before we go is um, the um, shakeup at Fox News. Oh, yes. um, we should oh talk I was hoping to avoid this. <laughs> no, we can't, <laughs> avoid, Come on. can't avoid this because this is, I mean, I think really important yeah. for how Trump got to be where he is. I mean, the Fox mm-hmm. News sort of crew um, has been, you know, has been important in helping him tell his story, right? And sure. Yeah. Especially to the audience that's most sympathetic to it. And. Uh, Bill O'Reilly, so the very popular host, got fired um, yes. yesterday um, as a result of these. 20 years at Fox? Um, yeah, at least 16 years doing that show, I think, something like that. Sure. It's been a long time. might be 20. Um, and so he you know, got fired as a result of these allegations of sexual harassment 
um, which seem to have something real behind them because there's been a lot of well, was, what, compensatory. Of them, Thirteen million dollars. Yeah, lots of lots of money paid out. So. Yeah. Um, and the big thing was that all the ad- advertisers trying to walk away, right? Yes. I mean, despite yep. the fact that O'Reilly Show is really, really popular and it's a great venue, therefore, to advertise on, mm-hmm. advertisers are saying enough's enough. We can't, you know, keep advertising on a show with somebody who has this kind of record. Um, so I think we need to think about, I mean, what does this do? Like, what does this mean for Trump that you have this guy who's, you know, O'Reilly is, by Fox News standards, relatively fair um, compared to, say, Sean Hannity, who one article I was reading described as a clearinghouse for all sort of pro-Trump ideas, basically. There we go. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's like that's probably about what Hannity does. Um, O'Reilly, at least, you know, although he certainly has a side he lands on, tries to tell both sides a little bit hmm. um, more than some of the other people on Fox News. So, yeah, what does this do for for the right and I think for the Trump administration? Um, yeah. I mean, this obviously, I mean, directly relates to Trump as well, since Trump actually came to the defense of oh, yeah. O'Reilly and basically yeah. tweeted out that he tweeted he, that. Yeah, t- t- <laughs> tweeted, tweeted out that, that you know he was being persecuted and you know unfairly accused and all these sorts of things. Right. Um, which you know, given Trump's track record, is not necessarily the endorsement you want. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, one of the things to, to take note of is, I mean, uh, Bill O'Reilly's ratings were actually on the rise uh, oh, a- after these accusations came out. So. Yeah. Um, you know, so basically the, the audience that, uh, you know, seems to be watching this, you know, want, seems to not only be okay with the idea that somebody, you know, uh, you know, may be engaging in these kind of behaviors, but mm-hmm. even, even sort of, uh, endorses, uh, this, this, this sort of behavior and maybe not the behavior itself, but wants to sort of say, well, you know, these sorts of accusations are always, you know, just sort of made up and, right. are, you know, right. are, are baseless. Um, so yeah, so I think that says something about the kind of people who are who also are most likely to support Trump as well. Yeah, I mean, and I think it, it maybe is connected to this sort of idea of political correctness run amok, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like, I think that even though, I mean, it, it does seem to me, like, and I don't know a lot about this situation, but it does seem to me like there's some real substance yeah. to the accusations against O'Reilly. But, but I think a lot of people want to look at that and say, well, you know, people are just overly politically correct and they're oversensitive about stuff, so probably this is just another instance of that, and right. then people don't look at it all that closely. And therefore, don't get all that bothered by right. it, even though there might be some really ugly things. But having said that, I mean, people are also pretty good at overlooking really ugly stuff, even when it's shoved right in their face, as right. we saw during the campaign when those, you know, that that recording of Trump saying these really lewd things came out, and and frankly, it just didn't do that much. Mm-hmm. I mean, it didn't really, um, it didn't trouble his core supporters very much. I mean, people who weren't going to support him were already mad about it, right. and, were, and got more angry about that. But it didn't really seem to change anything. What do you think and that so, is? Um, because people think that this guy's on their side and he's still better at the issues they care about, um, or at least, you know, they, they find him less reprehensible. And so they're so, they're so hardened against the other side that, um, you know, yeah, I mean, that's unfortunate, but I'm still going to vote I think for it's him. also the case. Yeah. I think he did something very deft that almost no politicians do. I think he was inoculated by his celebrity status and he had, yeah. and he had been criticized for so long for suing so many inappropriate things right. that this was surprising to no one. And right. cause, and as a consequence, causing no one to shift their beliefs because right. he'd already done enough, somewhat less egregious things mm-hmm. that this just fit the narrative, and it didn't cause anyone to reevaluate their right. position of him. Yeah, I'm yeah. not sure it's just a celebrity thing as much as sort of that. Once you once something's an issue long enough, mm-hmm. people get bored with it. I mean, it's it's the what I also call the Joe Biden effect, right? That Joe Biden <laughs> Joe Biden said many many really yeah, dumb things, things. Yeah. right, and really poorly articulated things. 
And it got to the point where no one really paid any attention to anymore because right. it's like it's just Joe Biden just what he does. saying something really awkward and doing something really <laughs> awkward. I mean, like, yes, he's snuggling with the wife of the defense secretary as the defense secretary is accepting the position. But that's just Joe. Yep. I mean, that's what he does. Right. I mean, and and so I think that, that was that like, that's just Donald. That's who he is. That's if, what so, he does. if so, Andy, that's pretty reassuring because that means that the next president, whoever that is, can restore certain kinds of norms to the White House just by the nature of who they are. And a lot yeah. of this yeah, norm breaking is invested in the person of Donald Trump right. and not in a new political norm. Yeah, maybe. I, I would like to think that. Um, <laughs> I hope you're right. Yeah, I, yeah, I hope that's right. <laughs> I, I, I guess I, I'm not. I might be a little more pessimistic um, yeah. in terms of those sorts of things. I think one of the uh, this, this is sort of only uh, marginally related, um, and in some ways, but but I also saw that basically um, I can't remember which one it was. It might have been. Might have been uh, GSS data. Anyway, um, but at any rate, they, um, they it came out that that basically um, uh, millennials. So people uh, have been asked like, what do they consider it to be the markers of being an adult? And being being married and having children yep. is way way down on the list now. Those are no longer like wait, significant. Wait, wait, wait. What is the markers of being an adult? Markers of being an adult are things like um, completing your education was actually one of the highest. Okay. So, com- so, so completing a formal education, um, wow. moving out of Bethel your parents- University, www. Bethel.edu. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Thank um, you. Yeah. <laughs> um, completing education was very high on the list. Um, another one that was fairly high on the list was was like having a job to support yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, like having your own place was not as high as you might expect. Okay. Um, because that's increasingly these right. people don't. These people don't. Right. <laughs> they don't want to think um, that's a marker. Right. And so, um, and then of course, uh, I, uh, if I remember right, fifty-five percent of millennials basically said that having a child and being married are not significant markers of, of adulthood. Hmm. Interesting. So, um, that is really interesting. So anyway, all that is to say, though, I think this kind of builds towards you know what we're we're seeing some shifts in yeah. people's values and what they think is really important. And if you don't think you know, the value of sort of monogamous relationships um, is mm-hmm. particularly um, significant in terms of what it means to, to be an adult person, then why would you think that Trump's non-monogamous lifestyle is anything, mm-hmm. problematic. Is, is, is a really big deal. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, and we, and we could get to there where the, I mean, where the, the personal behavior of the president doesn't matter very much. I mean, I yeah. think, and this is really where Europe is, really, with most of these issues, right? It doesn't really matter. I mean, um, what what the the prime president or the prime minister does with his or her sort of private time, right? I mean, that's, that's sort of a separate issue. Um, and, you know, when, when my parents worked as missionaries in West Africa, our coworkers were Germans, and they were always sort of amazed at the American attitude on these, like, why do you care about Bill Clinton's, you know, affairs, right? Which was one of the things we would talk about sometimes with, you know, the 90s. And, you know, why do you care about that? I mean, like, it just matters what he does politically. I mean, these are from Christian, German Christians, right? But who are saying, like, that just doesn't really matter. It doesn't really come in. We don't think about that in Germany when we choose the prime minister. And so, you know, Trump may clear the way for that to become the new normal, right? Because it's just like, well, yeah, there's a lot of real funkiness. But the question is, at the end of the day, does this person produce the kind of legislation and you know, governance right, that right, we right. want, um, and that's really all that matters. So, right. so maybe it does change that, and and it would fit with those kind of societal shifts. And, and certainly, you know, James Dobson, who was one of the major voices saying that 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 ought to matter. You know, behavior ought to matter. Um, you know, his full throated endorsement of Trump. Yeah. I mean, pretty much shows that there aren't too many people who probably are willing to make that stand. Yep. Yeah. Um. Well, uh, gentlemen, I think we're about. Need, we need to wrap here. Um, we'll come back next uh, next 
well, probably not next week, but probably the week after that. And by that time, uh, you'll have you may have noticed that um, uh, Britain has called for Theresa May, the Prime Minister of Britain, has called for snap elections in Britain. Yeah. We're, we're currently going through the French election as well. So I might force you guys into a little bit of international politics. I'd talk be about to be to talk about Trumpism that. worldwide. Will you make some room for me to talk on that? Sam Aubrey, everybody, I'm here. He's back. <laughs> this is my official time at bat right here. So this right counts. Here. Go like, for it, Sam. What do you want to talk about? I have no idea what you guys. I just walked in the room, so you guys did a great job. Uh, what do we decide the title was for this episode? Uh, with wither Trumpism, is that where we're going? <laughs> wither Trumpism. Works. All right. Oh. Uh, Sam, did you want to talk about uh, st- no. steroids in baseball? No, I'm good. Did you guys talk about that? Not even a little bit. Okay. All right. No, no, we didn't get to that. Did I tell Sorry. you what I did this weekend, Chris? No. I read Atlas Shrugged this weekend. Did On really? purpose? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, how would you accidentally read Atlas Shrugged? <laughs> I assume that's how it happens. Like, you're the DMV, you're stuck you actually read it, really? Shrugged. I, Just go for it. Yeah. I guess I've never read this. Yeah, it was, I will say, you want my, like, one-minute book report? Please, oh, please. by all means. Do it. It was really entertaining. Okay. Okay. Um, I, <clears throat> I have issues, very, major philosophical issues with it, sort of life philosophy issues, worldview issues. But like you don't, you don't believe that personal selfishness is the key to human happiness? No, I mean, but it's a, it's it's like <laughs> if you like soap operas, it's a pretty good soap opera. I mean, I told I was talking to my brother, and I thought I was a telenovela. Go. That's right. I said I was reading Fifty Shades of Capitalism or something, <laughs> <laughs> and that's the title. <laughs> oh, that's amazing! Oh, that's All right, and on that note, thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, on behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, this is Chris Moore saying, "Go Royals." 